Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of RX Unedited. My name is Dewey, your inpatient pharmacist. And I'm Jobin, the ER pharmacist. Jobin, welcome back. I mean, it's been a while since we recorded. It has been a while. <laughs> Over roughly two months since yeah, the last episode. Yeah, a little episode. over two months since I recorded. I mean, you know, life child, life changes. <laughs> yeah. Same with me. Same with you, yeah. <laughs> Both of us have had uh, significant life changes. Yeah, I got married. Uh, so now, you know, happily to come back. I actually miss recording our podcast. I got it's, the podcast itch. Yeah, it's been a while. I got... Not I don't I feel like I never know how to word it. It's like I got married again, but it's to the same person. <laughs> we just had our wedding very delayed after COVID, after getting married last year. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So we both return as married men. Well, I've been married. So <laughs> just now we're just disclosing it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. True. All right. Should, let's get the show going. Yeah, yeah. So we got a we got a good one today. Actually, Dwee found the article. Um, so this trial is early rhythm control pa- early early rhythm control therapy in patients with atrial fibrillation, and it was published last year in 2020. Um, it's also called so you can sound cool when you drop a trial name East AFNet four trial. Yeah, just a qu- quick background before we go into the trial. So I learned about the trial from. Um, a presentation that I attended, uh, actually, and the presenter, he did such a phenomenal job presenting this article, which piqued my interest in it, and I feel like it's such a, I don't want to say groundbreaking, but it's it's an article that potentially could impact the next AFib guidelines, so that's why we're taking the time to go over it now. Um, And also, I realized we've never really done a Journal Club episode, so... Two birds, one stone. Oh, man, Journal Club. I feel like I have partial PTSD from back in the day <laughs> as a resident and a student. But we'll try to make it painless. We'll try to go through the things that are actually important. <laughs> You're not being great at Jobin, don't worry. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> all right, so for this trial, it was an international study, but mostly based in Europe. There wasn't any U.S. sites involved in the study. Uh, it was investigator, investigator-initiated, parallel, open-label. And in the study, they had adults, so anyone greater than 18, and they were diagnosed with AFib less than 12 months. So that's a really important thing to remember. So these patients were early on in their AFib diagnosis. Uh, And anyone that was greater than 75 years old with previous TIA or stroke were included, and they had at least two of the following, or, or they could have had at least two of the following age greater than 65, female, heart failure, hypertension, diabetes, severe CAD, CKD, and left ventricle hypertrophy. Um, so these patients weren't necessarily the worst or like the sickest. Their CHADS vast score was actually only three. So they're not like the sick, sick AFibs, but they are, they do have uh, AFib. Uh, and basically, it was into two arms. There was the rate control arm, which was in this time in this study is the usual care, and then there was the rhythm control. Um, and just going back to our AFib episode, we talked about a lot of it that most patients, especially here in the U.S., for the most part, they get rate control. Rhythm control is not really something that we do that often. I'm not sure if there's exact percentages, but I would say most of the patients I do see on a regular basis in the ER when they come in for their and I asked them and do their med recs for what they take for AFib. 
they're usually on something for rate control, like a calcium channel blocker or beta blocker. And that's really it. Or amiodarone. <laughs> that's the one rhythm control they'll be on. Yeah, a lot of times our focus in AFib management is rate control and then anticoagulation. But basically, <laughs> we don't really focus much on the rhythm control aspect of it. Yeah, by no means do we really do much of the rhythm control. Um, <clears throat> and they also included in the rhythm control not just drugs, but they also had ablation in as part of the um, as part of one of the early rhythm control options that patients could receive. So in terms of interventions, patients just got standard care for any of their cardiovascular conditions, anticoag as according to their chads score, um, and everything was guideline-driven. So nothing like truly abnormal. It was just like the choice, just the two groups were being decided between whether they got rate control or rhythm control. That's essentially it in terms of the intervention between the two groups. Um, and then outcome measures. So for the primary outcome, the composite was the composite death from CV causes such as or strokes or hospitalization with worsening heart failure ACS, and then they also looked at number of nights spent in the hospital per year. And I would say that's something really good to know because I feel like as the years keep going on, like everyone's always about trying to minimize readmissions, days in the hospital, and I can tell you from the past few months of working in the ER. People are admitted at the hospital for very long periods of time, which has led to like crazy border situations where patients are sitting in the ER waiting for someone upstairs to get discharged. So I'm interested to always see data. I'm like, all right, if they can shut it. I used to think that that was such a silly number, but now working on a day-to-day basis, I'm like, all right, if I can cut out like one night at the hospital. All about the dollars. It's all about the dollars and it's all worth it because it keeps them out. It's one less night here in the hospital. Uh, and then in terms of secondary outcomes, they looked at individual components of death from primary outcomes, uh, rhythm, LV function, quality of life, and cognitive function at two years. And then safety outcomes, death from any cause, stroke, or pre-specified complication of rhythm-controlled therapies. Um, in terms of the follow-up, there was questionnaires every six months with one to two year, at the one-year mark and the two-year mark in-person visits. Um, and then for the stats, I hated the stats always in general clubs. Um, difference at least 20% between the groups um, is needed to achieve clinically relevant difference. Um, so they need at least 685 events or over 2,800 patients to achieve overall type 1 error rate of 5% with 80% power. Whew, got that over with. Yeah, those, <laughs> the, that, the stats are uh, no fun. But yeah, no, I mean, honestly, in terms of like the study, this is like, I would say this is a little bit more of like, I don't want to say make it seem like diminish it, but this is like very much like patients, like Dwee and I were saying, like you'd catch on the outpatient side, like through a PCP follow-up, or like maybe they came to the ED because they felt some sort of palpitation. Like this is like your patient that's doing their routine follow-up and then incidentally they bring up, oh yeah, I've had palpitations, or like I feel something that's different or something's changed. Um, so this is like those kinds of patients where you can catch it early and you can see if, if you want to treat it early, whether you want to go rate control or rhythm control. And that's what the study goes into. Yep. And I'll just go over the results real quick before we start our discussion. Um, So over 2,700 patients were randomized across Europe between 2011 and 2016. Patients were enrolled a median of 36 days after the first diagnosis of AFib. So you're looking at about 50% of patients included were diagnosed within a month. So that's a very early diagnosis based on their um, inclusion criteria of, of less than 12 months. 
That's, so, <laughs> that's as fast as you can get. Yep. So as, this is essentially as soon as you're diagnosed, you're going to think about rhythm control. Mm-hmm. Um, the mean age was 70, uh, half were females, with a mean BMI of 29. And then 75% of patients were diagnosed with the first episode of AFib or paroxysmal AFib. And the remaining 25% with recurrent AFib. Uh, note that none of the patients were considered permanent AFib, uh, because if you recall back to our AFib episode, to be diagnosed as permanent AFib, uh, you have to be in AFib for like 12 months, which would exclude them from the initial inclusion criteria. Uh, like Jobin covered before, the mean CHAS2 VAS uh, is about 3, so they're not super high risk for um, stroke. For, for stroke. Yeah. Um, and within the, or in the early rhythm control arm, most patients receive antiarrhythmic drugs. Flecainide was the most common. If they're not receiving a drug, then they'll be getting ablated. Um, interesting fact, because this was done in Europe, dofetilide is actually not available uh, in Europe, so it was not included in the study. And then... Oh, I, I don't think we went over this in the interventions, um, in the study design, Jobin. So patients in the early rhythm control group were given a device to take home, and they would have to basically take an ECG of themselves and send it in twice a week to a centralized location or a study site. And then if they were in AFib or if they're experiencing uh, symptoms, then it will trigger a visit, whether in person or a telephone call, from the from the investigator to help adjust the medications. So, going to the results, in the early rhythm control arm, about 15% had at least one trigger visit, and in the rate control arm, 85% remain off rhythm control at the two-year mark, and sinus rhythm was obviously higher in the early rhythm group because we are trying to achieve sinus rhythm. And the anticoagulation use was about the same for both groups. All right, so looking at the primary outcome. So the incidence of a first primary outcome event, which was the composite endpoint, per 100-person year was lower with early rhythm control group. The hazard ratio was 0.79, which met their statistics. criteria. So we can say that patients in the early rhythm group is about 80% as likely to develop a first primary outcome relative to the usual rate control group. And now if you crunch out the numbers, you get a number needed to treat of about 91, which means you would need to treat 91 patients to prevent one event of the primary composite outcome, which is not bad at all. Yeah, we'll dive more into that in our discussion portion. Yeah, yeah. I I just got too excited. I had to react. <laughs> <laughs> um, there were no, there was no difference in the second primary outcome, which was the number of hospital nights. Unfortunately, uh, neither did uh, they find any difference in the other secondary outcomes. In terms of safety, adverse events associated with the rhythm control therapies. Uh, which, if you recall, are the drugs and the ablation therapy. Um, so the rate is 5% in the early rhythm control group, 
versus 1.5% in the usual rate control group, which kind of makes sense because if you're treating these patients with antiarrhythmic drugs or performing ablation therapy, of course there are higher risks involved with the drug and with the therapy versus your usual care uh, on the rate control of drugs. It, an interesting fact I want to point out too is in the study, they did mention quickly that they also collected biomarkers for a sub-study from those who consented, which is pretty interesting to me because now they're looking at pharmacogenomics. Um, you know, Like a rhythm control versus a rate control, you mean? Like right. A, yeah, yeah. Right, uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, I feel like that's just going to be the new, like, we're not there yet, but I feel like come like 20 years down the road, maybe even 10, maybe if we get like, if it becomes a little bit more accessible and a lot cheaper and easier to run, like who knows? Yeah, but that, that was just interesting. They didn't mention anything else from it in the main article. Maybe they did in the uh, supplementals, but um, but they just dropped a one-liner like that and, I, and it caught my attention. Yeah. And then a second point that was really interesting, which I brought up earlier, is the patient in the early rhythm control group had to self-perform an ECG twice a week, right? And then send it to a study site. Whereas the patients in the rate control group didn't have to do that at all. Mm-hmm. So now my question is, that was that the driving factor for the difference that we saw yeah. from the results? You know, it could be. It could be. I mean, technically you look at it, they have closer monitoring of some degree, like they get more modifications of therapy. Because if you don't follow up on the rate control, because you have room to go up and change and alter your doses, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, like these people are essentially being monitored twice or they're seeing someone twice a week. Someone's laying eye on their ECG twice a week, which is an absolute luxury and something that we don't regularly, I mean, people don't get ECGs on a regular basis. Yeah, granted it's a single lead ECG, but it's still data. Yeah, it's still data, yeah. Yeah, and then this, this could open up a lot of implications in the future. You know, what What if someone designed another study that strictly look at this? Mm-hmm. You know, th- is, is simply monitoring someone more frequently, would that make a difference in their outcomes in a- with AFib? Yeah. You know, and, and then what, what if they found that it is indeed because we are monitoring these patients more closely, we're achieving better outcomes? And then it's going to open up to all these clinics that can yeah. be ran by your mid-level practitioners, for example, or even pharmacists. It can be a pharmacist-led clinic that mm-hmm. will just titrate or adjust the meds, right? So there's, there's insane. A, it, yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, it's exciting. I mean, the thing we were also jokingly talking about is like, oh, wow, like the way these smartwatches that we have nowadays, like, like, you can get an e. I mean, I don't have a, I don't have a smartwatch, but I know with the Apple Watch, you can get like, is it like a single? I don't even know what it yeah, is. Yeah, uh, you can get an ECG uh, readout with, with your Apple Watch. I've I've done it before. It's pretty neat. It'll tell you if you're in sinus rhythm or not, um, and then it will tell you your heart rate. You know, yeah. and Apple has been touting about this feature for, or ever since it came out. Like they've oh, been yeah. pr- pushing it. They've been promoting it, and I know, I always see the commercial about it. It's like, oh yeah, you can catch these dangerous things, or you can monitor your heart and have peace. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay. So and 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 we're still in a pretty. I I think we're still in a we're still in a, an early development stage on this kind of technology. Mm-hmm. You know, if Apple can do it soon, the Android devices are going to start to do it, 
right? And then they're just going to keep improving it. Mm -hmm. And soon we may see a wireless portable lead that can be placed on someone's heart to catch, like, you know, your typical ECG, like a 12-lead ECG. I mean, I've seen, like, it's very few cases, but I've seen, like, one or two cases where people come to the ER and they say, like, oh, yeah, my watch told me that, like, my rhythm was this. And it's like, what? (laughs) It's like, that just sounds, like, so preposterous. But, nope. I mean, the technology is there. I mean, Dewey and I are very big into technology. We love our tech. Love it. So it's an exciting thing. Like, this this easily, like, just seeing that this study was looking at, like, doing twice-weekly ECGs, and maybe there's a way to incorporate technology down the road. Never know what yeah. does it lead to. Yeah, and then we actually mentioned about who's paying for these tech- these yeah. devices, right? So if we can show that doing this or having these devices to the patients can make a difference in, in a, a hospital admission. Mm-hmm. Like avoiding a hospital yeah, admission. Yeah, or avoiding a, a hospital admission. Without a doubt, Medicare is going to jump on this. Yeah. You know, if you get, like, like you said, Yeah, children, it's like $400 for an Apple Watch versus an inpatient admission, even if it's an overnight observation visit. Like, that overnight observation visit is way more than $400. Yeah. Plus so logically, pay, it makes sense. Yeah, and then you can just pay, like, a pharmacist or a yeah. pra- nurse practitioner to just manage. Just manage. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Granted, we, we may have to start learning about ECG. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, as long as you have someone there that's qualified to read it, it's, that's all you need. Yeah. So this... Just that aspect alone got me really excited mm-hmm. about this study. Just the the potential for implementation of technology into something as old as AFib. Mm-hmm. Incredible. I know. So the one really nice thing that we saw that patients are enrolled uh, at a medium at 36 days. So it's quite impressive that patients were getting diagnosed and treated that quickly. But it seems that because of that, like rhythm control maybe was superior. So I think that's one thing to keep in mind. Like, I mean, granted, I think this is where I kind of have this, like, I don't want to say pessimistic <laughs> attitude. I'm like, huh. If only... No, Jobin, <laughs> positive vibes only. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm very realistic. I'm, but I'm just thinking, like, it's great. So, like, if we can find and detect and catch the AFib, like, patients in AFib earlier and get them treated earlier. Like this study showed that rhythm control did a pretty amazing job at treating these patients. And I think if I recall, looking back at it, like by the two year mark, um, what is it like a third of the patients weren't even on medications at that point? Like they weren't even getting treated. They, they were <clears throat> off. They were off, off yeah. like any antiarrhythmic. So. Yeah, so 65% remain on antiarrhythmic drug at the two-year mark. Yeah, and I think going into the study, there was like, obviously there was like a small portion. Like 98 por- or something like that. Yeah, like a small portion of people that were not doing any drug, like not getting any medication. So to have a third of people like come off of it, like that's amazing. Like if they went back into normal sinus and they have no more AFib and it's well under control, like, dude, that's amazing. So, I mean, I would love to catch everyone's AFib early, but it, I think that's a big question too. Like, what if we are more like, what if we have more patients that are like, I don't want to say permanent AFib, but like. Like can progress to a more severe end of AFib. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like they've had AFib for much longer than just 30 days. Like if I, I feel like if we had more patients that were in like the six month window or like seven, eight, nine, 
like nearing that one year mark where it's like near quote labeled as like permanent AFib, like what would the results be then mm-hmm. at that point? That's just my questioning always. Cause I feel like a lot of times, like I've had plenty of patients that come in, like I feel like especially, especially right now, I think the big thing that I've seen in, in emergency medicine right now, uh, now that things are kind of opening up and people are getting a lot more comfortable, like a lot of people are coming back to the hospitals and just doctor visits that haven't, doctor offices that haven't seen care in almost 15 months. Yeah. Like or even an in-person visit versus a telephone call. Yeah, exactly. Doctor. Like my belief on telemedicine, I love technology, but dude, telemedicine, I don't believe in it. <laughs> like you need, to, I think there's something special about just like that human in-person interaction and just truly getting to touch the patient and truly do a physical, true physical assessment. Like, there's so much value in that. So, I mean, I, plenty of people have come back to the ER and it's like, oh, I haven't had any of my meds refilled since uh, December 2019. And I'm like, yikes, yikes, that's a little bit of time. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> or they were like non-compliant heading into the pandemic. So, yeah, no, I mean, that's like the big thing I'm curious about. Like, let's say someone was diagnosed with AFib in like June of 2020, like middle of the pandemic, post first peak but uh, they haven't seen anyone in like a year. They like were lost to follow up. Like how would these people do if we wanted to start them on rhythm control or should we just stick to rate control? That's what we're comfortable with. That's what we always do, but I don't know. Yeah, definitely there's still a big unknown for those patients Mm -hmm. uh, who are outside of this window or outside of this study. Yeah. Um, Big unknown, but I guess kind of going back to what you said about the decrease in use of antiarrhythmics, I hate to burst your bubble, but also keep in mind, these patients could have also been ablated. So once sure. you're ablated, you know, they-, they I mean, but that's good though. Up. Yeah. I mean, that's that's amazing though. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's like, it's, like you resolve someone's, like, I feel like a lot of conditions when you think about in patients, they're on the meds forever. Like it's very rare that it's like, oh, actually we're done treating you for this condition. You're done. Yeah. One med, one less med is, a good thing. Yeah. I mean, like a lot of patients, especially in AFib, like AFib only goes, leads to more diseases from there on out. Like you're not starting off strong with AFib because automatically you need something. Most people are getting something either whether it's rhythm control or rate control. If your chads vas score is high enough, you're getting an anticoagulation. So plus you likely have heart failure, which also adds on like a ton of other medications. Yeah. I mean, like, let's say you catch it early. You're not on heart failure meds initially, but if it's uncontrolled and unmanaged, then you got a lot more meds coming your way, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, again, I, I don't want to take away from it, but if we catch it early, it seems like rhythm control does an amazing job at resolving this. So that's why I really, really enjoyed reading this article is because it's kind of shifting the way of thinking a little mm-hmm. bit in treating AFib patients, mm-hmm. right? Before we were, before this, we were, you know, very keen or very focused on rate control. You know, mm-hmm. rate control, rate control, rate control. Mm-hmm. But now we're going to say, oh, maybe. Was it maybe rhythm control if they were diagnosed early. Mm-hmm. Like there's benefits in that. Mm-hmm. So which is neat. Like this, that's why I, I think this article will likely impact our guidelines. Uh, they can prove me wrong change. later, but. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's got a huge chance. It's, like, it. it's a legit study. Like it's got a num- quite a number of people and they, they did what, what anyone should do when you're comparing these two. So it's like, it seems like a valid uh, 
this could be a game changer in a sense. Mm-hmm. And another thing that we can also look at based on the results is there was no difference in quality of life and LV function, which were the two secondary outcomes, right? Which implies that both rhythm control and rate control are effective at controlling symptoms and preserve the cardiac functions in these early AFib patients, mm-hmm. which is neat because yeah. it's not all about rate control. Yeah. You know, if you can tolerate the, the, the potential adverse effects of the antiarrhythmic drugs, you know. Go yeah. for it. Yeah. Um, some critiques that I've men- I may have mentioned before, so because the study was pretty much strictly done in Europe, um, the fetalide or ticosin wasn't included in the list of drugs to be used. And then the mean BMI was 29, uh, which, in my personal opinion, uh, I feel like I've seen a lot of patients um, with the BMI over 30. Everything's bigger in America. Yeah. So <laughs> granted, it's 29, which is you can argue, oh, it's very close to 30, but this is a, an average, yeah. right? An average of 29 versus mm-hmm. an average of like 35. That could be a big difference. Yeah. You know, uh, so this could affect the external validity of this trial. You know, we kind of have to consider that when we're treating our patients here in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the trial was not was not designed to determine safety or efficacy of a specific rhythm control therapy. So we can't really say, oh, flecainine was the best anti-rhythmic drug or amiodarone. Yeah. Exactly. I feel like we're most comfortable, like here in the States, we're most comfortable with amiodarone. Like I was actually surprised in the study that flecainide was the most commonly used rate or rhythm control med. I was like, huh, I can't even think of like 10 patients in the last year that I've seen on <laughs> flecainide. Like everyone's on amiodarone. What are you talking about, man? I just tube a flecainide <laughs> dose to the ER yesterday. I know, I know. That was... That's like the one in two, like, that's like the two two of those ten cases. <laughs> but I agree. I agree. I, th- I feel like amiodarone is the most frequently prescribed medication here. here in the States. Yeah. Could be an insurance issue, too, if you think about it. It could be. Everything always comes under insurance here, too. <laughs> right? Whereas in Europe, a lot of times, they don't, insurance is not a factor. Yeah. So that could be another. That, that could be a big uh, thing. True. Yeah. Uh, speaking of insurance, you know, I'd, I'd love to see some kind of cost analysis to this, because now with rhythm control, most likely you're gonna in, you're gonna have to involve a specialist, whether it's your electrophysiologist, your interventional cardiologist for the ablations, or just a regular cardiologist to help mm-hmm. titrate the antiarrhythmic drugs. Um, you know, not not to say that our primary providers can't do it, but I'm sure that they're probably not too familiar with other drugs that we use for anti-arrhythmic mm-hmm. control uh, or rhythm control, mm-hmm. you know? So you, you're going to have to consult these specialists and that will cost more money. Uh, an ablation therapy will cost more money because yeah. now patients have to come in for a procedure mm-hmm. and whether or not if they have complications from a procedure like a tamponade, uh, they, they may require, you know, an overnight stay in the hospital. So yeah. There's definitely costs and also medication costs. Yeah. You know, certain medications are more costly when you're when it when you talk about rhythm control drugs. Yeah. You know, amio is probably the cheapest. It's dirt <laughs> cheap. 
This yeah. is probably why it's the most common one we see here in the States. Probably. Yeah. Oh, I mean, and the other thing with like dofetilide, you can't even start that just willy-nilly on people. You need right. to be admitted to the hospital. You got to be admitted to be titrated. And they have to monitor your QTC. So like, I feel like the things, there are barriers here, like in on state side for like doing rhythm control off the bat for patients because, yeah, like Dewey's saying, like that degree of involvement. Like, I feel like if you're rate control, like, yeah, sure, your PCP can do it. You can still get involved with a cardiologist, whatever. But like, if you're ever in rhythm control and you're thinking of ablation down the road, like you need an EP doc or you need interventional cardiology involved at some point in the journey. And in this study, there was a decent portion of people that did get ablation eventually. So mm-hmm. that's something uh, really important to keep in mind. I, I mean, it sucks. Like I, I always tell this to my patients, like patients always tell me, it's like, yeah, I couldn't get the refill on this. And I always try to ask, like, is it cost? And it's like, yeah, it's the cost. And like, it's something that like, it's true. Like here, healthcare is not cheap. It, it costs a lot of money. So it's, it's just something to keep in mind. Like when we're looking at these two drugs or these two options for treating patients. Yeah. And everybody hates doing a prior. No one wants to sit down and do a prior. <laughs> Nobody wants to do prior. Yeah. If you're listening there, insurance companies. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So again, Great article. I highly recommend uh, people just taking your time out to go over the article. Of course, we didn't really go into the nitty gritty details in the article, mm-hmm. but I feel like we've covered enough so that we can discuss it with you guys. Mm-hmm. But great article. I do think so. Like our practice could change based on this article, or this article will spawn more studies mm-hmm. looking at this. Yeah. No, I think this is like potentially like a starting point for where changes could come from. And I mean, who knows? Maybe they'll make it like 1B or 1C, (laughs) whatever those uh, different degrees of recommendations are. But I mean, this is a good study. Like it's honestly a good study that points towards a possible different avenue to look at treating AFib, especially if you catch it early. Absolutely. Yeah. Now that we've done with the article, Jobin, I kind of want to ask you about your well-being and resilience since we talked about this last episode and you weren't there. All right. So how how do you feel right now at a stage of your career? Like, do you feel like you have a good balance between work, life? Do you feel like you had a good place in your mental well-being? <laughs> I feel like ER people are always dark and twisted. <laughs> it's just Oh, man, you're, you're, you're just losing our ER fan base. That's like <laughs> half of them. Okay. No, I mean, most ER people would agree. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, while we were waiting for a trauma today, we were asking, uh, like the trauma attending was asking, anyone got any jokes to tell? <laughs> and the ED guy was just like, one of the ER people were like, we only have dark, twisted jokes. What would we even say? Because <laughs> she was like, oh, it has to be a clean joke. And it's like, oh, man. <laughs> no, but I mean, honestly, like, I feel like I have a pretty good work-life balance. I mean, honestly, that's the one thing I do enjoy about ER life. You never have to follow up on anyone. I always joke and say it like there's never anything to follow up on the next day. So I'm like, all right, I'm done for the day. Go home. <laughs> yeah, one dose and you forget about it. Yeah, one and done. Um, I mean, I always say too, like I'm always impressed that like I'm this far in my career at this age. I'm like, oh, wow, I feel like I'm pretty far <laughs> at this age. I'm like, I thought I'd take like another five or six years to get here, but I'm here already. So <laughs> Slow down, buddy. I mean, this is the summit of my career. I never wanted to do anything more. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I have no desire to do admin. I appreciate people that do. So, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I feel pretty good. 
Yeah. What What are some hobbies or things that you do uh, outside of work that to help you relieve stress uh, or just to help you stay sane? I I love baking. I make bagels from scratch. I just it's just like I think baking. The reason why I enjoy it is because it's almost very pharmacist like, like old school pharmacy like. You're compounding. Because everything's oh. like weight based, so you gotta like weight base everything. There's a lot of instructions to follow, but I enjoy it because then you get a treat at the end of it. <laughs> See, I'm curious that you like baking because baking is you have to be so precise. I enjoy it. Everything is so precise, you know. Whereas you, know, you enjoy being in an ER where a lot of things <laughs> are empiric, right? You're like, oh, best guess I have is this. I mean, you know, there's so. still some <laughs> degree of precision. <laughs> Yeah, true. I'm a pharmacist still at the end of the day. <laughs> like, even though my environment's the ER where it's just wild, I still am a pharmacist at the end of the day. So I still have some degrees of being very uh, particular and precision, like with some degree of precision. Um, but yeah, no, I enjoy baking, video games. <laughs> I, st- I still play like a college kid, you know? I, I still play video games. Yeah. But uh, no, I mean, those are the main things, I mean, honestly, that I do. I mean, eating out, now that things are reopening. Oh, my gosh, I'm so excited. Have you been anywhere good recently? Recently? Um, man, where do we go recently? I'm trying to think if we've gone anywhere nice recently. I feel like it's nice just to be able to I get think food been, from these restaurants again. Yeah, I, I think that's the thing, been close. that's been the main thing. Like, just going to the restaurant and sitting down and mm-hmm. enjoying it is mm-hmm. just been nice. Yeah. Yeah, no, we've had a very long stretch of weddings, actually, since our wedding. <laughs> oh, like, well, I guess we're in that Friends stage, weddings. so it makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, we've had plenty of weddings, so those have been nice. I mean, but even going to a wedding has been super nice. Yeah, cool, man. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks for the questions. <laughs> I'd like, to, I'd like to see, or I'd like to get different perspectives from different people, mm-hmm. you know, on what they do, so that people don't think that we're just robots. Oh yeah, and no. th- and like I guess we're officially starting a new style of podcasting where we're not just strictly focusing on like clinical topics. Of course, we'll go over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's certainly what keeps our interest, and mm-hmm. hopefully you'll find something f- productive. Um, but also, I'd like to get to know the pharmacists or the nurses or you know whoever is sitting behind a microphone. It's just mm-hmm. something nice to show people that. You know, we're everyone is people. Nurses are people. <laughs> pharmacists are people. Doctors are people. Everyone is people. So it's nice. Nice. Thanks for sharing, Jobin. Yep. Well, on that note, um, let's end the episode here. I think that's a great ending point. Um, again, guys, I'm super excited to start recording again. Thank you for always been listening. Uh, we also have our Instagram page, so if you like our episodes, make sure you subscribe to our Instagram for our podcast news. Other than that, thanks for listening, and see you next time. Thank you, guys. Have a good one.